Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 77 on Fever and the Return Traveler, recorded in April 2015 and published in February 2016, we have guest experts Nazanin Meshkat and Matthew Mueller. Dr. Meshkat is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and a fellow at the Open Lab. She has extensive international healthcare experience having practiced emergency medicine in Iran, Papua New Guinea, and India. She was the curriculum co-coordinator for the first ever emergency medicine residency program in Ethiopia. Dr. Matthew Mueller is an infectious disease physician and the medical director of infection prevention and control at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's an associate scientist in the Li Ka Shing Knowledge Institute and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Every year, an increasing number of people travel abroad. And travelers to tropical destinations are often immunologically naive to the regions they're going to. It's insanely common for travelers to get sick. In fact, about two-thirds of travelers get sick while they're traveling or soon after they return. And somewhere between 3 and 19% of travelers to developing countries will develop a fever. Imported diseases like malaria, dengue, and Ebola can be acquired abroad and brought back to your ED in unsuspecting individuals. Now, this is serious stuff. You might be surprised to learn that malaria is responsible for more morbidity and mortality worldwide than any other illness on the planet. Just as the decision to do episodes on pediatric DKA and sickle cell disease came out of a needs assessment, so did this one. Dr. Meshkat co-authored a paper in the November 2014 issue of CGEM that looked at Canadian emergency physicians' knowledge about the identification and management of tropical diseases. What did this study tell us about our knowledge of tropical diseases? Well, I'm not sure that you really want to hear this, but I'll tell you anyways. Sadly, they found that most emergency physicians had minimal or no specific training in tropical diseases, and that emergency physicians indicated an unacceptably low level of comfort when faced with patients with tropical disease symptoms. In fact, 40% of the cases were incorrectly diagnosed or managed. And Canadian ED docs aren't the only ones whose skill isn't stellar in this department. A similar study in 2006 out of the UK showed that physicians there had a misdiagnosis rate of 78%. And sadly, there isn't much out there in terms of resources for ED docs to brush up on their tropical diseases knowledge. Now, this misdiagnosis rate isn't wholly because of lack of knowledge. It almost certainly also has to do with the vague presentations and huge amount of overlap between so many tropical diseases. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. The positive aspect of the study was that the ED docs communicated a strong desire for more training in tropical diseases. And I was thrilled to read that the docs said that podcasts would be a good continuing medical education opportunity to improve their knowledge about the diagnosis and management of tropical diseases. So you might be thinking that it's impossible to learn all the thousands of details of the dozens of different tropical diseases, and that might be true. However, in the ED, while we don't need to know every detail of every tropical disease and don't necessarily need to make the exact diagnosis right away, we do need to have a rational, organized approach to diagnosing and managing fever in the return traveler so that we can identify some of the more common serious illnesses and start timely treatment in the ED. So here we are with the author of this important study and one of our local infectious disease gurus to help you bolster your already huge brains with what you need to know about fever and the return traveler. So welcome, Dr. Mueller. Glad to be here, Anton. And welcome, Dr. Meshkat. Happy to be here. (laughs) Awesome. So let's jump right into the first case. It's an overnight shift at your local community ED. A 60-year-old man comes in with the chief complaint of fever. The triage nurse is able to ascertain that he's recently returned from India in the past few days. He speaks no English, and you're unable to obtain more history, but his daughter, who can translate for him, is parking the car and will be in in a few minutes. You have a minute to gather your thoughts before she arrives. So Dr. Meshkat, 
what questions do you want to make sure you ask this patient's daughter besides the usual history you'd usually take on someone who presents to the ED with a fever? Well, the first thing I would do, Anton, is actually take a step back. I always try to refresh my memory about the differential diagnosis of fever in the returning traveler, so FERT, if it's okay if I refer to it from now on as FERT. And sometimes I find that it's been a while since I've even thought about it, about the differential. And a quick resource that I typically tap into is the CDC Yellow Book. Thinking about somebody in India, the top three things that come into my mind that I definitely would not want to miss as part of the diagnosis of tropical diseases would be malaria, dengue, and typhoid fever. So I would definitely want to focus on getting some information on what this patient did pre-travel before they went to India in terms of immunizations, malaria prophylaxis, and if they were compliant with it or not. The next thing I want to know is, well, you know, what kind of factors they were at risk for when they were in India. So were they in a rural area? Were they in a city? Were they getting mosquito bites? Did they use a bed net? And were they eating local food at the local stand? Any risk of like sexual transmitted diseases risk? Those sort of activity that would put them at risk. And then finally, I would want to know what kind of symptoms they're presenting with. So my history and physical taking would be a little bit different in a patient with fever. I would think about, you know, is there petechiae, hemorrhage? Uh, have they been bleeding from anywhere else? Is there any abdominal respiratory symptoms? So I would focus a little bit in terms of what I know around malaria, typhoid, and dengue. Okay, we'll get into all the details mm-hmm. of, of each of those diseases. Dr. Mueller, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. So I, w- I would say uh, one of the first things I do, I'm going to take a step further back, and this comes from my role in infection control as well. The first question is, as strange as it may seem, could this be a public health emergency? So before you go into the room, when you're dealing with somebody where the triage nurse has told you that it's fever in the traveler, or you found out one way or the other that this is what you're going to see, is there any risk to you or to others from a contagious illness? And so we're looking at basically uh, what part of the world did they come from and what's active at the current time. So right now, for example, we know that there's Middle Eastern respiratory coronavirus circulating in Saudi Arabia and some other countries in the Middle East. There's concerns about Ebola in West African countries, bird flu in the Far East, and there's always the possibility for something that's not yet recognized. And one clue there might be if you have several members of the same family who are all coming in ill with the same thing at the same time. So you want to just think about those things first. And in this particular case, nothing jumps out to fever and somebody returning from India. I'm not aware of specific concerns right now. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is exactly as we've been discussing is what's the differential in this case and what would be the life-threatening illnesses that could be affecting this person. So one of the key things with fever in the traveler is that if you have fever in an otherwise healthy uh, Canadian who hasn't traveled, most of the time this is a benign illness and you, you may or may not go to your family doctor. And if it often resolves in two to three days without any specific treatment, we assume it's some type of viral etiology. But fever in the traveler can represent something very severe that could progress rapidly to a life threatening condition, but might start off in the same way as everything else, sort of just fever, headache, myalgias, malaise, sort of a flu-like illness. So to be aware that something could progress rapidly. And of course, the person you're going in to see may already be critically ill. So that's the sort of the second level of concern is, is this a life-threatening infection affecting this patient? And then the final part of the framework that I look at, is it actually related to travel or unrelated to travel? So another error that you could make is forgetting that just because this person's been in India, this could be still be community-acquired pneumonia, urosepsis, or something that could just as easily have occurred in Canada. So I like to step way back. You know, first, we need to ask ourselves, is this elevated temperature caused by an infectious etiology or a non-infectious etiology? Because there's a whole slew of non-infectious causes of elevated temperature, like thyroid storm or serotonin syndrome, for example. Once you're convinced that this is infectious, the next step is to decide if this is a local infection, like a regular viral upper respiratory tract infection or a UTI or a community-acquired pneumonia, or is this a travel-related infection? If you think it might be travel-related, you need to figure out if this could be a contagious public health emergency, like SARS or Ebola, for example. You'll need to look up the latest threats out there by region on the CDC website. Then, think about the big three travel-related killer diseases, malaria, 
dengue, and typhoid fever, which can all start out looking like a benign flu-like illness and then make a sudden turn for the worse. Then you'll want to get into some of the risk factors for these killer travel-related illnesses, as well as some of the more specific symptoms and signs, which we'll get into soon. So that's the general approach to fever in the return traveler. Now Dr. Mueller is going to talk specifically about the travel history. But then when I go to assess the patient, I think the critical thing is the travel history. And I mean that in a broad sense. So it goes without saying that you need to know about this person's past medical history and allergies and all the things that you would want to assess in somebody with a locally acquired infection. Or if you expect, you know, assessing somebody who has a fever and low blood pressure and they've never left Canada. But what we're adding on to that is basically what I call the travel history. So that includes probably the most important thing is just finding out the kind of questions you'd ask your friend if they came back from a trip. So where did you go? What did you think? Why were you going there? What were you doing? Where did you stay? And patients are often uh, very happy to tell you all these things. That gives you a lot of epidemiologic information to tell you what are the likely infections that may have occurred. In particular, exact dates of their itinerary are critical. And individuals may not volunteer some key information. So for example, this case where the person was in India may have been the intention. Their travel was to go visit family in India, but on the way back, perhaps they stopped in Dubai for a week and they may not mention that. And that affects both what their exposures might have been because now there's two countries that they've been to, but it also changes the incubation period. So you know they've now left India a week earlier than what you may have thought. So exact details of the itinerary are important. Moving on from there, you want to go then back before the travel. So did they seek pre-travel advice what advice did they receive? Did they follow that advice? The most important piece of advice or thing that you want to ascertain is whether they were on appropriate malaria chemoprophylaxis and whether they were compliant with that, whether they had adverse events relating to their chemoprophylaxis. But it's also relevant to find out about their immunization status, both for routine immunizations that all Canadians should receive, and then any additional or special vaccinations that they required for travel. In this case, again, somebody might have recommended typhoid vaccine, and that would be interesting if they had hepatitis C or hepatitis A vaccinations and so forth. They also likely received or they should have received advice about avoiding mosquito bites and what kind of food and water they should be consuming. Those are very hard for travelers to comply with sometimes. And so there's often errors that are made in terms of drinking tap water instead of bottled water and so forth. But it's still worth finding out whether they attempted to be careful with what they ate, what they drank. And then coming back to what they did when they were in the uh, country or when they were traveling is really the exposure history. And there's several key elements of the exposure history. So the first is, again, food and drink. So what were they eating? Were they eating unpasteurized milk or cheese? Were they eating raw meats or undercooked seafood, these types of things? Were they drinking non-bottled water? Did they have ice cubes in their drink? You also want to ask about exposure to insects, insect bites. Again, Many uh, mosquitoes and insects can bite without the uh, individual recognizing that they've been bitten, but certainly it's good to ask about this and they may have noticed some unusual exposures or a tick bite, something like that. You want to inquire about freshwater exposure, so swimming, wading, walking with open shoes through kind of murky water can put you at risk for some diseases such as uh, schistosomiasis or leptospirosis. Sexual contact was already alluded to. There's actually good data that people's normal patterns of behavior change when they're traveling. So they often leave their usual community behind and their behavior when they travel in terms of risk taking may be different than what it was in Canada. So that again could include simple things like not using a condom for safe sex, but also engaging with sex trade workers and other things that obviously would increase their risk of sexually transmitted diseases that you could acquire in Canada, but there actually may be an increased risk during travel. Were they around anyone else who was ill, either traveling with them or did they have contact with a local who obviously had something wrong with them? And it's also important to ask about healthcare contact. So were they hospitalized or did they seek treatment for something while they were traveling? There are a number of things that you could pick up through the healthcare system in some of these countries that would be relevant. Again, going back to the very beginning when you're talking about the reasons for traveling, it's impossible to think of all the questions you could ask, but often if you have a good rapport with the patient and they're telling you about their trip, you'll pick up things of obvious importance. So perhaps this was somebody 
in vet school who was actually doing an elective in uh, Africa and having exposure to animals. Or perhaps this was an individual who went and was working with Ebola patients in Africa or something like that that would put them at high risk. There was actually a large leptospirosis outbreak among a group of people who were doing extreme sports where they were sort of dropped into the jungle with no equipment and they had to survive for a week. And so they were eating all kinds of bizarre things and swimming and drinking unpurified water. And obviously they would be at high risk for some very unusual uh, infections. So really getting a good idea of what they were doing, where they were going, why they were there, what their behaviors and exposures were like while they were traveling helps you to understand what they may have been at risk for. So let's go on with the case. You learn that he just returned from India after a three-week vacation where he was visiting relatives. He has no past medical history. His vaccines are up-to-date, but he didn't get any travel-specific ones, and he was not taking malaria prophylaxis. The fever started two days ago. He's been coughing, and he's had chills. The rest of his review of systems is negative. You go back in to examine the patient, and his temp is 38.4, his heart rate, 120, Respiratory rate, 22, and O2 sat of 94% with a normal blood pressure. He's visibly diaphoretic. So Dr. Mueller, what are your thoughts on this case now that we have a little bit more information? Yes, I think we've received some very important information about this particular patient. So the most important thing is actually that the fever and the travel history in, in particular have come out early on. So I couldn't stress enough that this is a common mistake, either that no one takes the history or it's taken at triage and the, the physician's not paying attention to the fact that the patient has traveled. So we know they have fever and we know a little bit of epidemiologic information that can help us narrow our differential diagnosis a little bit. So they've been to India and we can start thinking about what are the diseases diseases that they may have acquired in India. And Dr. Meshkat summarized some of the common tropical infections that might arise in India, including malaria, typhoid fever, and dengue. So those should be certainly top of mind as we go through uh, with this. We have some other epidemiologic information, which is that this individual was visiting relatives. And there's actually a fair amount of literature that suggests that what we call VFRs, or visiting friends and relatives, are individuals who are at increased risk of acquiring infections during their travel. For a, a whole number of reasons, they may have a lot of confidence about going back to visit their family. And so they may not seek or follow pre-travel advice. They may not feel that they need to do that. In some cases, they don't recognize that their immunity to infections that are common in other parts of the world, once they move to Canada, they can lose their immunity. So within six months of being in Canada, any immunity that you had to malaria is starting to wane. And then, of course, they're likely traveling to parts of the country and participating in activities and eating foods that regular tourists uh, would not be doing. So that certainly would elevate, for example, the risk of typhoid fever in this individual. We have some details about the time frame from when um, they traveled, and that's a very important thing. So if, again, if somebody's traveled a long time ago, there's a number of illnesses that you can rule out, but this was more, he's recently arrived back in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. So the differential remains fairly broad, although things that have a long incubation period may be less likely. And what are some of the tropical diseases that typically have a short incubation period? So I won't be able to give you a complete list of, uh, of every tropical infection, but again, starting with the most important tropical infection, malaria, important to realize that malaria can actually have a short, intermediate, or a long incubation period. So malaria remains in the differential diagnosis for up to a year after travel, and some rare cases can present even more than a year from travel, as there's some species of malaria that can sort of relapse over time. Okay, so it, the incubation period for malaria doesn't matter. You can never rule out malaria. Uh, hepatitis, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis E, they have longer incubation periods. Amoebic liver, abscess, longer incubation periods. Leishmaniasis, some of these start to become less common or less likely uh, infections. Those are sort of your some examples of long incubation periods. A lot of viral infections tend to have shorter incubation periods. So dengue fever usually presents within two weeks, and beyond two weeks, you've really excluded dengue. Chikungunya, which is an emerging infection globally, also has a shorter incubation period. So if you're out past two weeks post-travel when the symptoms start, it's unlikely or it can't really be chikungunya. Some common infections that you see in travelers include things like HIV from sexual exposure and then mononucleosis-like syndromes like CMV, EBV, usually within a month and for the CMV, EBV, even a little earlier, sort of out to 21 days. So those would be some examples of short incubation periods. So that's helpful to know. 
I guess if you pull out your yellow book, then you can get all that information there just to run through, okay, which are the short incubation ones, which are the long incubation ones, and if the patient has a good history for when exactly the fever started from when he was traveling, then that at least can help you narrow it a bit. And I guess the key thing is the most common tropical disease is malaria, and that can have any incubation period, essentially. Absolutely. So sometimes when in the emergency department and someone comes in having traveled from somewhere abroad, they've got a fever, and I've heard things like, oh, this pattern of fever is very typical for malaria, or this pattern of fever is very typical for dengue, it's got to be dengue, or it can't be dengue because of this pattern of fever or that pattern of fever. How useful is the pattern of fever in trying to narrow your differential diagnosis in these patients? You know, unfortunately, I don't think it's particularly useful. I think it's really interesting when we read about these diseases to think about their manifestations and their pathophysiology. And of course, with malaria, it's the rupture of the malaria parasite, which is replicating in the red blood cell. And then as they rupture into the blood, it may trigger the fever. And if that happens in a cycle where the ruptures are synchronized, you get the classic fever pattern of malaria, which is sometimes called a tertian or quartan fever because it's happening every uh, you know 72 hours and these types of patterns. Unfortunately, it's not sufficiently uh, common to be used to rule in or out a diagnosis of malaria. So the bottom line is fever plus travel, you have to rule out malaria. And the pattern of the fever is really sort of of academic or interest. Uh, Again, with dengue, you can see the saddleback fever where you have a fever, then it settles down, you defervesce, and then the fever returns as kind of a classic pattern. But there's many cases of dengue where you don't see that typical pattern. So these are interesting uh, phenomena, but they're not particularly diagnostically important. Okay. I guess the bottom line there is that just because someone's not having a typical pattern of, say, malaria, doesn't mean they don't have malaria. Exactly. And unfortunately, many of the key infections that we're trying to diagnose in this type of patient can have very similar initial clinical manifestations. So you have to keep your mind open and you have to order the right test to rule out those that are going to be life-threatening in the short term and, and those where there's specific therapy that you need to get to the patient if, in fact, they have the condition. Our listeners are on the edge of their seats waiting to find out what these mystery investigations are, but we'll get to that. Before we do investigations, let's talk about physical exam. So you've got this patient in front of you who's diaphoretic, tachycardic, with fever and cough, and you know there's a huge differential diagnosis. What features are you looking for on the physical to help narrow your differential diagnosis? So, you know, it's always easy to say that you should do a complete physical examination, and we all know that that doesn't really exist, or you'll be in the eMERGE uh, all day uh, with your first patient. But there are certain things that are of increased importance in the returning traveler. So, as always, your vital signs are critical. Again, there's some interesting associations with low heart rate and enteric fever and a few other conditions where you see a paradoxical bradycardia despite sort of a SERS response, but that's not that reliable. Um, so what, what are some of the specific diagnoses that have this? Typhus can do that and typhoid fever are the two that come to mind. But again, it's not 100% reliable. But if you see somebody who's looking quite sick and their heart rate's sort of 65 or 70, it could tip you off that this is one of the things to think about. Again, mental status is something you may pick up on right away, but any alteration in mental status is really important to note. And of course, meningismus in a neurologic exam then become essential to assess. And then the other thing to really focus on that we all tend to omit unless the patient draws attention to it is the dermatologic exam, because you may actually find some specific findings on the derm exam that can point you towards a specific diagnosis. So if you see a uh, scar that could represent a tick bite, this may be diagnostic in a traveler from the right part of the world. So from Africa, that could be diagnostic of a rickettsial infection, such as an African tick bite fever. In enteric fever, which may be more common in somebody coming from India, we sometimes see rose spots, which are faint pink macules that can be seen on the trunk. You can have a generalized maculopapular rash with dengue. Of course, there's other viral infections that can do that. But the dermatologic exam is definitely very important. And then I think looking for lymphadenopathy, examining the chest, uh, cardiovascular and uh, respiratory examination are important. And uh, hepatosplenomegaly may be seen with a number of tropical infections, including uh, malaria, particularly the splenomegaly. So we'll have some images on the written summary in the blog post for some of these dermatologic findings. It is definitely a challenge to find those 
findings such as like the rose spots and ecchymosis in people of color. I worked in Papua New Guinea and in Africans, and like a few cases of typhoid, for example, I would not be able to identify rose spots on patients of color. So just a little bit of caution. Yeah. And I'd mention again that even in Caucasian patients, they only 40 or 50% may have the rose spots oh, with typhoid, sure. yeah. but it's, it's a useful finding if you see it. They also tend to be a bit evanescent, so they can appear and disappear fairly quickly. So you have to really watch for them to emerge and they may not be there continuously through the disease course. One thing I should have mentioned too is if you see a sort of diffuse purpura and petechia, that could be a picture of a meningococcemia, which also is more common in travelers to some parts of the world. And there's a meningitis belt in Africa where you may see patients more likely to return with meningitis from those areas. So that's another dermatologic finding that could lead to a diagnosis. So bottom line is do a really good skin exam. Many patients, you won't find anything, especially if they have very dark skin. But if you do find something that can really help, look for the rose spots, look for petechiae, and look for an eschar related to a tick bite. So let's move on to investigations. You've done a pretty good physical exam. There's not much to find on this patient. What's your next step in terms of investigations? Do you have sort of a standard set of investigations that you order for fever and return traveler? They would definitely need basic blood work. I would do CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, glucose. I would do liver enzymes and an amylase. Okay, you had mentioned liver enzymes. Dr. Mueller, I know that a lot of these diseases give elevated liver enzymes and the typical hepatitis will have liver enzymes that are way elevated in the thousands. In looking at the liver enzymes, are there any sort of typical patterns for these tropical diseases? Well, usually it's the elevation of your uh, AST, ALT, sort of a typical hepatitis pattern. And as you mentioned, you may see very high elevations with uh, hepatitis A, uh, hepatitis B, or hepatitis E. But you could also see elevations of lower nature still with malaria or dengue. And then it could point to some other diseases that are less common, like leptospirosis or yellow fever that may be associated with increased liver enzymes. And of course, sometimes elevated bilirubin and jaundice is a clinical finding that perhaps we should have mentioned earlier. So jaundice definitely uh, would be something to look for on the exam that's going to tip you off that those liver enzymes and bilirubin may be abnormal and point you towards a disease that has a more direct effect on the liver. But many viral diseases can cause sort of a mild transaminitis. So again, it's not specific, but it's important to note. And if it's very elevated, it may lower the differential diagnosis to some extent. I would send off for malaria screens, so thin and um, thick smears for malaria. I would do dengue serology, especially in somebody, again, in this patient who's coming from India. And then I would send off for blood cultures, blood cultures times two. And many times I asked the nurses to call the lab and let them know that we're worried about tropical diseases such as typhoid, just so that they know and, and they're looking for it. I do a urinalysis. And a chest x-ray as well in this patient, especially because he was tachypnic and his SATs were 94% on uh, room air. Just to add to what Dr. Meshkat was saying, she mentioned the blood smears for malaria, but I think it's really important to emphasize the fact that this is the test that you need to do in every traveler that's returned from a malaria endemic area, which is really the vast majority of travel destinations that we're talking about outside North America, including Central America and Mexico, where there is some malaria. So this is a test that everybody needs to have to rule out malaria right off the bat. And doing it once is not good enough. So you can have negative thick and thin smears initially. And if you have a clinical suspicion of malaria, you need to repeat those every 12 to 24 hours until you have three sets of negative smears. Once you have three sets of negative smears, you have ruled out malaria, but until then it remains a possible diagnosis. And it's also really important to emphasize, depending where you're practicing, that the individuals reviewing the smears may have different levels of experience and some may never have seen malaria before. So it's also important to emphasize that, you know, if it's a tech who comes in at midnight and they've never seen malaria, I've seen several times where the smears read either as negative or as a low parasitemia. And when a more experienced person looks at it, 
They see that they either see the malaria that was hard to detect because there was a small number of parasites, or they change the uh, estimation of how severe the malaria was, or in some cases identify a different species or multiple species of malaria. So another error that's sometimes made is believing that you have Plasmodium vivax when in fact you have both vivax and Plasmodium falciparum on the smear. So can't emphasize enough the importance of an experienced reader of the smear. One of the suggestions actually that was given to me by an infectious disease colleague was to always draw an extra tube of blood, red top tube. Because what a lot of times they do is when they do serology, it's really the change in titers that can help you from the acute episode and the convalescent phase. It's that change uh, between the titers that can help with the diagnosis of some of the other diseases that maybe as eMERGE dogs we haven't really thought about. And before we leave investigations, what about the CBC? Are there any patterns in the CBC that can help you out in terms of narrowing your differential? Again, there's nothing that you're going to see on the CBC that's going to give you a specific diagnosis, right? But in many of the diseases that we associate with travel, such as dengue, uh, malaria, you can actually see a lymphopenia rather than a lymphocytosis. So that might be a clue. Also, it can give you some idea about the severity of malaria if that's in fact what we're dealing with here. So some of the um, findings of severe malaria or part of the definition of severe malaria is severe anemia with different sources using different cutoffs of say less than 50 or less than 60 or less than 70. But certainly that would be concerning to see a severe anemia in somebody who was previously well and had a normal, presumably normal hemoglobin or thrombocytopenia, which again is a non-specific finding but could be seen with malaria. Okay. So Suffice to say that a CBC might help you differentiate a tropical-related disease versus a run-of-the-mill disease like pneumonia or UTI or something where you typically won't see thrombocytopenia or anemia associated with it. Yeah, it helps you lean in a certain direction. It doesn't do necessarily more than that, and it also gives you an idea perhaps of how sick the person is. Dr. Mueller is now going to do a general review of what we've talked about so far. Taking the travel history, considering where they traveled, and again, whether there's an active public health emergency like Ebola that you need to consider, usually that almost is never the case, but just to think about that, or something else where infection control practices would be important. Make sure the patient's clinically stable so they don't have meningitis or something else that should be clinically apparent. And then even if they're just febrile with a headache, not feeling well, but they'd look otherwise stable, it's critical to rule out malaria. And if you do each of those things and then refer them on, come back to the clinic the next day or you know, come to the tropical medicine clinic or the travel clinic, you've really done a superb job, I think, and avoided the common errors, which again is that you never realized that it was a travel history or you exclude malaria without doing the proper testing are the, I think, two of the key errors that can be made and have resulted in fatal outcomes for patients. So again, the most common errors in malaria management are number one, failure to recognize travel as an element of the history. So remember, ask about travel in every patient who comes into the ED with an elevated temp. Number two, relying on a single smear to rule out malaria. Remember that you need three smears, 12 to 24 hours apart, that are all negative to rule out malaria. And number three, misinterpretation of the smear by an inexperienced lab tech. Dr. Mueller is now going to talk about some additional pitfalls that he sees when it comes to malaria management. So I think one, one of the things that we haven't mentioned so far is the fact that chemoprophylaxis is not 100% effective against malaria. So another uh, pitfall that I would caution you or error that I would caution you against uh, making is ruling out malaria based on the fact that the patient was on chemoprophylaxis during their travel. There's several reasons for that. One is that often travelers 
are inconsistent in uh, their compliance with the chemoprophylaxis. And certainly in this case or in a situation where someone's obtended, it may be difficult to ascertain whether they were uh, compliant. And one of the elements with some chemoprophylaxis, such as, for example, if you're taking mefloquine, is you actually need to take it for four weeks after you return. And this is one of the errors that's often made is that once you're back in Canada, it's hard to continue taking something. So they may not have taken it properly. But even in in situations where there's 100% compliance with the uh, chemoprophylaxis, malaria still can occur. So you can never exclude it just on that basis. Obviously, we want people to take chemoprophylaxis. It dramatically reduces your risk, but not to zero. If the clinical situation fits the bill, you need to uh, get the thick and thin films. Okay. Yeah. I heard this amazing statistic that half of the malaria deaths in the U.S. are in patients who supposedly took chemoprophylaxis. I haven't heard it put that way before, but it certainly seems uh, plausible. The other thing that I would caution you about is the patient that uh, reports a history of fever, and then they come to your emergency department and you don't happen to detect a fever or triage or when you do your physical exam. It's important to know that there can be a fluctuation of fever in these patients. So if they give a history of fever, you should take it seriously. And often they will describe chills as well. So there will be a history of chills along with the fever. Again, non-specific findings, but I think the important thing to take home is that if they're giving you a history of fever and they've traveled, even though there might be a febrile in your emergency department, you should still take it seriously and it could still be malaria. Once somebody has malaria, other errors that could occur that I see less frequently are really just recognizing that it's a medical emergency. So in any child Canadian or visiting Canada where you've diagnosed malaria, they need to be admitted to hospital for treatment. And in my opinion, the vast majority of adults actually should be admitted to hospital. And, you know, some experts will say that if the parasitemia is low and the individual is recently resided in a malaria endemic area, so there's like a new immigrant or somebody visiting from Africa, that they may be partially immune and so they can tolerate malaria better than either somebody who's never traveled to those parts of the world or somebody who emigrated to Canada but has now been here more than six months and so their immunity has waned. But uh, I would think very carefully before sending somebody home with malaria because it can progress rapidly and sometimes the first smear can show a low parasitemia and the second one shows a dramatically higher parasitemia and then their clinical condition deteriorates rapidly. So the final thing really I think is in most cases to admit them to hospital until you're absolutely certain that they're tolerating their anti-malarial treatment and that their parasitemia is declining and their clinical situation is improving. It doesn't necessarily need to be a long admission. Yeah, it's interesting because in Africa and Papua New Guinea, where I did see a lot of cases of malaria, they kind of treat it like the common cold there. They do have a built-in immunity and they don't get as sick or it's rare to see patients that get sick, but we really patients that do not have any immunity and it's their first time being exposed to malaria. Those are the patients that can get really sick really quickly. And so one has to really exercise a lot of caution with them. And when, if you decide to send them home, certainly they would have to have very close follow-up. So let's go on to another case. In our first case, we had a patient who wasn't so ill. Let's move it up a notch and present a sphincter tightening case. A 45-year-old male patient is brought in by ambulance at 3 a.m. having suffered multiple seizures. His initial glucose was low at 2.1. After obtaining IV access, he gets 2 amps of D50W and 2 milligrams of IV lorazepam, but his seizures continue. After two more doses of lorazepam, the seizures finally stop. He now appears pale and diaphoretic. His vitals are a blood pressure of 78 over 43, a heart rate of 112, respiratory rate of 34, an O2 sat of 89% on a non-rebreather. He's febrile with a temp of 40.1. Half an hour after the seizures have been stopped, he still has a depressed level of consciousness not following commands, but localizing to painful stimulus. His chest exam reveals bilateral crackles and his abdominal exam shows diffuse mild tenderness, but no peritoneal signs. He has no rash, no neck stiffness, 
or meningismus. As you're scratching your head thinking about the differential, his wife arrives and tells you that he's recently been traveling in South Asia. So Dr. Mueller, we always need to start with a wide differential. What diagnoses would be at the top of your list in this patient? So uh, I think there would be a wide differential, as you've said. And of course, again, we need to consider diseases that may have predated or be unrelated to travel. So could this be a brain abscess that's ruptured into a ventricle, a form of meningitis that could equally occur in Asia or in Canada would be things to think about, HSV, encephalitis, and so forth. But then we also need to think about diseases that could be directly related to travel. And the most important one to consider would be whether this could be a case of severe malaria complicated by cerebral malaria that's resulted in his seizures and decreased level of consciousness. So I think that is the essential diagnosis to exclude here. There's other diseases that this could represent as well. It could be dengue shock syndrome, for example, a severe variant of dengue and probably a variety of other things. But I think the critical one, both because it would fit the presentation and because it is treatable if treatment is initiated rapidly, would be malaria. So let's talk a little bit about the presentation of malaria in general. What are some of the key things that we need to know about the clinical presentation of malaria? So I think that the first thing is that fever is very common. So 90% of patients with malaria will describe a fever, have a fever, but the rest of the presentation is fairly nonspecific. So fever, headache, myalgias, malaise, systemic symptoms are common. Um, So just like the flu sort of thing. Exactly like the flu. Again, GI symptoms can be relatively common too. So some nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea can sometimes lead people to believe this is more of a diarrheal illness like a salmonella, shigella, and that type of thing. But those symptoms are actually still completely uh, compatible with malaria. And because it's a multi-system disease, it can affect the lungs and other parts of the body. So you can also have respiratory symptoms as well. That must be really tricky. I mean, if I have a patient with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, and headache, and they've been traveling, I just assume that they've got one of the more common traveler's diarrhea. So what would make you kind of stop and think, oh, could this be malaria in someone who presents kind of with gastro and a fever? Yeah. I mean, it's funny to say, but the key thing is you just always have to think of malaria. So if there was a fever and it wasn't just sort of some loose BMs and uh, no fever, but once you have a fever and the travel history, uh, you have to think of it. But then the nice thing is that you can exclude it with your thick and thin film. You need to think of it. And then unfortunately, you just need to test for it and rule it out and then proceed to consider the other uh, etiologies that may be at play. So any patient who's been to a malaria endemic area who presents with gastro and a fever should get worked up for malaria? You know, I I think so. I think you're going to avoid some errors there. You know, sometimes you may have such a clear presentation. uh, So somebody who looks fairly well and says they have burning frequency, dysuria, nocturia, the dipstick is positive. Do you need to do this every single time? You won't miss a case if you do, right? But if they had no other symptoms, you might sometimes have such a specific etiology for the fever that you can confirm what's going on. But I don't think it's ever wrong in a traveler with fever to do a thick and thin smear. And certainly if you've decided not to do that and they're not improving or worsening, then you have to reassess. So it's probably safest to do it each time. Okay. And the clinical triad that they talk about for malaria is fever, splenomegaly, and thrombocytopenia. Do you find that sort of a useful triad? Stay away from triads when it comes to malaria, because often you don't, you don't see those physical findings in a patient who ends up having malaria. It's useful if certainly you find those findings, but it should not be something that deters you from investigating that patient for malaria. In terms of the species in malaria, there's a whole list of different species. I know that falciparum is sort of the big bad one that we watch out for. Are there any other species of malaria besides falciparum that we should know about? You know, we get back these smears and they tell us what they think the species of malaria is, and that can help guide our management. What are the sort of key ones to know about? 
Yeah, so I'm not sure you need to know all the details about the uh, five species of malaria that we're now aware of. So there's actually a new species that was recently identified. But I think there are a few pitfalls and basic principles that you do need to know about the speciation of malaria and about how to treat malaria. So the vast majority of fatal cases of malaria that occur in Canada and, and other countries are due to Plasmodium falciparum, as you said. And so any case of suspected malaria should be assumed to be Plasmodium falciparum until proven otherwise. And I think that's the important practical advice. All forms of malaria can be severe, but in terms of really rapidly progressive fatal cases, it's usually the Plasmodium falciparum. And recently it's been recognized that there's a form of malaria called Plasmodium nolesi from Southeast Asia, which also can be fairly rapidly fatal. But this is a much less common and, and limited right now to that geographic area. So the key principle is if they're behaving like a Plasmodium falciparum, it probably is Plasmodium falciparum. And some of the errors that have been described in this area are, for example, receiving a blood smear result indicating that it's Plasmodium vivax or ovale, but the patient is extremely sick with a high parasitemia and treating them inappropriately on that basis. And what's likely happened is one of two things. They may actually be in infected with two strains of malaria. And so the person that was reading the smear recognized one, but didn't search well enough to identify that there's also falciparum present. Or it could have just been a simple mistake from an inexperienced reader who interpreted one species as the other. So really in anybody whose clinical presentation is very severe, until you really get the experts involved, I would treat it as if it were falciparum, regardless of the uh, other information that you receive. So this patient we suspect might have cerebral malaria. What kind of malaria smear would you suspect in this sort of patient? Well, it's a very good question and you have to be cautious here. So cerebral malaria is a severe form of malaria. You may expect that the parasitemia level on the smear would be very high and it can be very high. But in some cases with the first smear in somebody with very severe malaria, it's actually initially low. And part of the reason for that is that in cerebral malaria, part of the pathophysiology is that abnormal red cells that are affected by the malaria parasite can sequester in the blood vessels in the brain and block the blood vessels and trigger some of the symptoms that you're seeing, but that actually can lead to a transient decrease in the parasitemia. So again, it speaks to the importance of getting the second and the third smear and initiating treatment in this case when you have the clinical suspicion or even though the parasitemia may appear to be low initially, this type of patient would have to be admitted to hospital if they have any seizures or CNS symptoms because it likely is severe malaria and the initial smear was giving you a false sense of security because the parasitemia was low. I always get confused about the percentage parasitemia. You know, we get back these smears and it says 2% parasitemia. What does that actually mean, the percentage parasitemia? At what percentage parasitemia should we start to get worried? Typically, the cutoff is 5%. And again, that has to be taken in the context of what Dr. Mueller was referring to, that if you have a patient who is behaving like they're very sick malaria, you go with that and you don't go with the parasite levels. But let's say if I just had a patient that looked relatively well and then had a parasite level at about 7%, I would certainly be more inclined to admit that patient than have them follow up as an outpatient. Whereas if they come in with like parasite levels of 0.5% and they're perfectly well and they they have good follow-up, then I might entertain the idea that they can be managed as an outpatient with close follow-up. So 5%, 5% is the cutoff. Yeah. And I would expand on that slightly. So 5% is what's used by the CDC as the definition of severe malaria. But I think the key thing to take into account is two things. One is whether this is an individual from a malaria endemic area recently who's partially immune because they may tolerate a slightly higher parasitemia. So in anybody with a level five or higher, that's severe malaria. But in somebody with a level of 2%, who's recently arrived, for example, from Africa, they may tolerate that relatively well. But a Canadian who's never been to Africa and comes back with 2% can actually be extremely sick. And there's some thought of actually lowering the threshold for severe malaria down a little bit lower than the 5%. So I think even 2 to 5% in somebody who's not partially immune or immune to malaria would be highly concerning. And then the other thing is that you really also want to see the sequential smears, of course, because 2% now 
could be 7% in 12 hours. So what you want to know is when you start treatment for malaria, is the uh, parasitemia rising or have you brought it under control and it's coming down? So I think the parasitemia is one test, but you're looking at the whole clinical picture to make a decision. So whether or not that first smear is positive or negative or has 2% or 5% parasitemia, you still need to do the second and third smear. So Dr. Meshkat, this patient's really, really sick. You're thinking they have encephalitis. They may have malaria. They may have herpes encephalitis. They may have bacterial meningitis. You're going to be doing an LP on this patient. What can you expect on an LP for a patient with malaria? Well, often it can be negative, and certainly you're doing the LP more not to help you with the diagnosis of cerebral malaria, but to rule out potentially other causes such as, you know, bacterial meningitis or HSV. So it is important to entertain doing an LP and sending out for CSF, but it can be normal in cerebral malaria. Okay, good to know. So for those patients who are totally gorked with a fever and you do an LP on them and it's negative... That might be the trigger where you weren't thinking of malaria in the first place to think, oh, we have a negative LP in someone who looks like they're encephalopathic with a fever that can clue you into maybe this patient has malaria. Yeah, certainly it would make you worried more about malaria in that situation. Okay, let's continue with the case. So our altered febrile shocky patient who returned from South Asia was resuscitated, scanned, and started on ceftriaxone, vancomycin, and acyclovir. The CSF was normal, except for an elevated protein concentration and a slightly elevated opening pressure. The malaria smears came back positive for falciparum. So this patient sort of had the typewriter thrown at him, so to speak, with multiple IV meds given on spec, quite appropriately in my opinion. Dr. Mueller, which patients in general with suspected malaria require IV antimalarias now in the emergency department, and which patients require oral antimalarials in the ED, or can these wait? In terms of how to treat patients with malaria, principle of who needs parenteral or IV therapy is fairly straightforward. So anybody who meets the criteria for severe malaria should also be started right away as soon as possible on intravenous treatment for malaria. And those criteria can include the smear, 5% parasitemia, but also a variety of clinical features. So for example, severe anemia is a criteria for severe malaria, impaired consciousness or recurrent seizures, shock with a systolic blood pressure less than 80, prostration with extreme weakness, acute renal failure, ARDS can occur, severe hypoglycemia, spontaneous bleeding or DIC, macroscopic hemoglobinuria, jaundice, are all criteria that you would use. And you just need to have one of those things. So if you have any of those features, that's severe malaria, you need to start intravenous therapy immediately. In Canada, the choices are IV quinine and IV artesanate as your first choices. And artesanate is perhaps better than quinine. So there's been some head-to-head studies that demonstrate better outcomes for severe malaria. But one of the key things is which one can you get first? So I wouldn't delay waiting for the better drug, but start treatment as soon as possible. So artisanate is the new kid on the block, and that's the one that's your first choice. If you can't get that fast enough, though, and you have quinine, then use quinine. That's correct. Got it. I'll just add, too, that when we're using quinine, we usually combine it with doxycycline, but it's the quinine that's critical. But you do want to give doxycycline either IV or oral, depending whether the patient can take the oral doxy uh, or not. In my opinion, though, everybody with less severe malaria, so say you have a parasitemia of 1% and none of these concerning features, they still should be started as soon as possible on an oral antimalarial and in most cases should be admitted to hospital to ensure that they are tolerating the antimalarial and responding to treatment with clinical improvement and a decreasing parasitemia. Okay, so in our sick sick patient who we've thrown the typewriter at in terms of antibacterials, and covered for HSV, they're encephalopathic, they're really sick, they might be in septic shock. We order the thick and thin smear. Even if the parasitemia level is low, if they're positive for malaria, those patients need IV antimalarials. And the first choice would be artesanate. If you don't have that, then quinine plus doxy would be your second line. Exactly. 
On to case number three. A 21-year-old university student presents to your ED complaining of fever and chills for 10 days. She describes nonspecific symptoms including fatigue, headache, malaise, and crampy abdominal pain. She denies upper respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, or chest pain. She says she's more constipated than usual. She has no significant past medical history and only takes oral contraceptive pills. She spent her March break recently in Peru with friends. On exam, she appears well, and all of her vitals are normal except for a temp of 38.2. You're a bit surprised to see that she has a heart rate of 43. Her GCS is 15, and her neck is supple. Chest exam is normal. Her belly is distended and slightly tender diffusely with no peritoneal signs. You can't detect any organomegaly, and she doesn't have any rash. So you find out that she is Canadian-born and has had all of her routine immunizations. In Peru, she stayed in homes in mostly urban areas, but also hiked Machu Picchu. She was well until she returned from home. She met with her family physician before traveling and took appropriate malaria prophylaxis during and after her travels, as recommended by her family doctor. She admits to missing two or three doses throughout her travels. She used high-concentration mosquito repellent and long sleeves and pants when outdoors in the evenings, but did get some mosquito bites. She was not exposed to any sick contacts to her knowledge. She has no new sexual contacts. It turns out that this patient was observed in your emergency department on a monitor and that her heart rate continued to be low in the 40s. Her blood work came back with a normal CBC and mildly elevated liver enzymes. A day later, she was positive for salmonella typhi. She's got typhoid fever. So Dr. Meshkat, what were some of the clues in the history in the case that I presented that this could have been typhoid fever? So the relative bradycardia is a feature that is often described with typhoid fever. So patients can have a fever, yet instead of having the usual tachycardia, they present with bradycardia. You don't always observe this in patients with typhoid fever, but certainly if it's present there, it makes you think of it. Other components are the history of constipation. A lot of clinicians might think that when you're dealing with salmonella typhi, that you're actually going to get uh, diarrhea. But these patients sometimes do present with diarrhea, but often they present with constipation instead of diarrhea. So that shouldn't mislead you. Now, this patient didn't have a rash, but what is the typical rash that you would see if you did see a rash in typhoid? Yeah, so I think about like something like 40-50% of patients will present with a rose spots on their trunk, their back, their upper and lower extremities. Again, caution in patients that have dark skin because um, you might not pick it up. But if it is present there, and again, with the other constellation of symptoms, uh, certainly it can increase your specificity when you're thinking about typhoid fever. So we know that typhoid fever can be found on a regular blood culture. Is there any situation where you'd order stool or urine for typhoid fever in the emergency department? So if the patient is presenting with diarrhea, I would certainly send it off for cultures. Now, not necessarily because it's going to have a great sensitivity in picking up typhoid, uh, salmonella typhi, but it can certainly help you detect other uh, conditions that you might be dealing with. Blood culture is the most sensitive when it comes to diagnosing acute typhoid fever. If they have positive urine dipstick, also send off urine cultures, but we need to know that the sensitivity of picking up salmonella typhi in stool and urine are less than your blood cultures. So it's rare in the emergency department that we're going to see a positive blood culture for typhoid because it takes 24 or 48 hours for the culture to come back. Let's say you've sent someone home after doing a blood culture and their fever return traveler, and the preliminary report comes back as gram-negative bacilli. Yeah, so that's a really, uh, it's a really good question. And it reminds me of a patient that I, uh, I saw a few years ago that's always stuck in my head. So this was a gentleman who was originally from Kenya, but had emigrated to Canada, but he continued to operate a business in both countries. So he was frequently going back and forth. 
and living about half the year in Kenya and half the year in Canada. And he came into the emergency department with fever and headache and sort of drowsy, not completely obtunded, but drowsy. And his wife was concerned about him, brought him to the emergency department, and the astute ED physician ordered thick and thin films. And interestingly, they were positive, showing the uh, the sexual phase of the malaria parasite and a very low-grade parasitemia. I believe it was like 0.2% parasitemia. So I was asked to come and see the patient to initiate treatment for malaria. And I came down and was talking to the wife, primarily because the patient, although uh, had stable vital signs and fever, really was fairly drowsy and not really answering questions appropriately. I came down and basically told her, you know, I think that he has malaria and described the treatment we were going to start. And she said to me, this isn't malaria. He's had malaria hundreds of times. Whenever he gets malaria, he takes a couple days of chloroquine and he's better. And, uh, you know, he did that this time and he's not better. And I said to her, well, you know, from Africa is an area where there's widespread chloroquine resistance. So we wouldn't expect his malaria to respond to chloroquine. And of course, I was factually correct But the wife was actually also correct because the next day, 24 hours later, the blood culture came back showing a gram-negative bacillus. And it was at that point that we recognized he had two problems, but probably most of his symptoms were due to typhoid. So the key thing to realize is that typhoid is due to salmonella, which is a gram-negative bacilli. When the blood culture first comes back, that's all the information you're going to have. It'll take longer for the lab to confirm that it's typhoid. So you have to recognize that this is what you're dealing with in the typical uh, clinical presentation. So non-specific febrile illness in the traveler. You're not worried about an acute abdomen or something where this gram-negative might be E. coli from an abscess or perforation. You get the gram-negative in the blood, most likely you're dealing with typhoid. And that's, uh, in fact, what was the case in this individual. And once he was started on appropriate antibiotics, he uh, improved rapidly. On to our last case. A 30-year-old female returns from Dominican Republic one week ago and presents to your ED with a three-day history of fever, headache, myalgias, and a petechial rash on her extremities. She was previously healthy with up-to-date vaccines and was taking malaria prophylaxis as prescribed. She does recall being bitten by mosquitoes prior to returning home. Other than the rash, the rest of her exam is pretty unremarkable. Specifically, she has no signs of meningismus. The CBC reveals a white count of 3.2, a platelet count of 80. Two malaria smears are negative. So in this case, because of the mosquito exposure, petechial rash, lack of other signs and symptoms of bacterial meningitis, and two negative malaria smears, the doc in this case was suspicious for dengue fever. Now, it's important to understand that there are are not really any pathognomonic findings on physical exam or on initial lab tests that are a slam dunk for dengue, and the breadth of presentations is quite remarkable. This makes dengue a diagnosis that's especially difficult to make in the ED. Dr. Meshkat, could you just tell us a little bit about how dengue is transmitted, and then we'll go on to the WHO definition of dengue. Sure. So dengue is a virus that is transmitted by a mosquito. The WHO definition is having fever plus two or more of a rash, arthralgias, nausea and vomiting, a positive tourniquet test, and the last one being leukopenia. And so what's a tourniquet test? How does so that work? So a tourniquet test is basically inflating a blood pressure cuff for uh, and leaving it inflated for five minutes. And once you deflate it, you look distally at the site of the cuff to look for petechiae. So the tourniquet test is one of the five WHO criteria for dengue. I understand that one of the rising tropical diseases that's quite similar to dengue is chikungunya that you had mentioned before. Dr. Mueller, how would you differentiate dengue from chikungunya? Yeah, so these are very similar diseases One of the things to know in terms of clinical significance and the difference between them is that dengue can sometimes lead to very severe manifestations such as dengue hemorrhagic fever or dengue shock syndrome. And we don't see that with chikungunya. And one sequela of chikungunya that we don't see with dengue is that they can have persistent arthralgias or even arthritis uh, lasting for months after the resolution of the acute illness. But essentially, they're both acute febrile illnesses associated with exposure to mosquitoes in appropriate parts of the world. 
and tend to present with very severe headaches and myalgias as a feature of both. So they're almost clinically uh, indistinguishable in, in their typical uh, presentation. But those features may help you to distinguish them from other diseases such as typhoid fever, for example, or from malaria. Now, it's important to realize that there's an overlapping spectrum of illness here. So the real way that you distinguish these diseases from malaria is by getting your thick and thin smears. You really always need to do that. The severe arthralgias that you see with dengue and chikungunya can be quite dramatic. And in fact, another term for dengue is called breakbone fever, which comes from the intense pain that people can experience with this. And there is a descriptions in the literature of such severe pain that the moment the disease starts, the patients are almost frozen in the position that they uh, were in when the fever started because of the severe arthralgias that they're having. So they can't straighten limbs and so forth. So uh, it could give you a pretty good idea this is what you're dealing with, although it's not definitive. You can diagnose it using serology, and that would include an acute and convalescent specimen. But from an ED perspective, you have to realize that this is information that you won't get usually until long after the patient has recovered. So what you're doing with acute and convalescent serology is detecting a rise in antibody titer that takes a week or two to occur. But that's often interesting to the patient and clinician after the fact, but won't help you with the acute management of dengue. So essentially, dengue is a clinical diagnosis in its initial phase. You need to rule out other treatable infectious diseases such as malaria and typhoid. And after that, the management of dengue is largely supportive. There's no specific antiviral medication for dengue. But really, the critical thing is to look for evidence of severe dengue, hypotension, bleeding, those type of things. And the patient, therefore, may need to be admitted and monitored or even in an ICU setting, depending on how sick they are. They may need fluid management to maintain blood pressure. They may even need blood products if they have severe uh, hemorrhage. And so close monitoring and appropriate supportive care can really improve the outcome of dengue, although there's no specific treatment. The other thing to mention is that sometimes the severe manifestations can be delayed slightly. So the fever may actually resolve and then the other symptoms start. And so patients who are being sent home should be cautioned that they may actually get worse and may need to come back if they start having severe manifestations. Well, that almost wraps it up. To help retain everything you've heard in this podcast, go to the Emergency Medicine Cases website where you'll find the key pearls, pitfalls, and take-home points from this podcast in the blog posts and the written summary that can be accessed from the summaries page. And before I sign off, I just want to let you know that registration is currently open for North York General's Emergency Medicine Update Conference in May. And EM Cases guest experts, Walter Himmel, Chris Hicks, Amal Matu, Stuart Swadron, Maria Vankovic, David Carr, Melanie Bamel, Justin Morgenstern, and a whole bunch more will be speaking there. I hope to see you there. So until next time... Don't forget to ask about a travel history in everyone who presents to the ED with fever.